Hey everyone, it's your host, James Olson. Before we get to the episode, I just wanted to share a quick reminder that Pacific Sound Radio has our very own playlist called Van City Jams. Van City Jams features bands and artists that we talk about in every new episode we drop, along with a selection of our favorite local singles. The playlist is updated every week, so head on over to Spotify and expose yourself to some new and exciting Vancouver music. That's Van City Jams, only on Spotify. We now return to your regularly scheduled podcast. Hello and welcome to Pacific Sound Radio, your go-to source for everything happening in the Vancouver music scene. I'm James Olson, and today we're speaking with Alex Morrison, vocalist, guitarist, and band leader of The History of Gunpowder. The History of Gunpowder are a blistering and mysterious freakout ensemble who blend jazz, blues, art rock, soul, and world music into a progressive and explosive sonic experience. Featuring a large cast of some of the best musicians in the Vancouver scene, Alex and company have established themselves as one of the best live acts in Western Canada, with their theatrical live shows often featuring burlesque dancers, gymnasts, and performance artists. Always looking for new and innovative ways to share music with their fans, their next release, Swallows, is an immersive concert film shot over the course of a seven-day residency at the Weird Church in Cumberland, B.C., Before we explore the phantasmagorical history of Alex's group, let's take a listen to a cut off of the Swallows soundtrack. This is The Epileptic. Thank you uh, for coming on the show, Alex. I've been a fan of your band for quite some time, oh, nice. so it's great to have you here. Okay, uh, I've had a couple other guests recommend you on a few separate occasions, so I was like fulfilling that, I guess, promise as it were, to to bring bands on the show. Yeah. So, want to kind of break the ice a little bit? I've been asking this because I'm always on the lookout for what other people are listening to. What's on your summer playlist right now? Who have you been listening to a lot lately? You know, I I have kind of two avenues of listening to new music one is that i i just got a car with a cd player and i retrieved all of my old cd wallets because i have like 600 cds from when i was younger so i'm listening to all of my old cds which is really funny like john fushante and all these very melodramatic early formative years cds high school stuff high school stuff yeah yeah um so that's fun but i i'm listening to a lot of um Sylvia Perez Cruz, who is this amazing uh, female vocalist and songwriter uh, from Barcelona. And uh, when I I spent some time there and I couldn't get away from her and the impact she's had on that scene. And uh, she has this one 
album that's just her and a, a string quintet and I, i've been listening to that nonstop. um i'm listening to jacob banks a lot um some of his more kind of blues less electronic stuff um i really love jacob banks um i've been listening to a lot of brazilian music actually and and what's happening right now in brazil there's kind of this renewed acoustic pop um maybe not pop but like a fleet foxes oh interesting type That's cool. movement in so indie folk I, w- I would say with a poppy kind of um bent uh in brazil and there's a lot of great artists coming out right now like that um and i'm listening to quite a bit of nigerian music as well yeah all over the place. Yeah. Yeah, very yeah. worldly. And yeah. uh, I definitely noticed that with your music as well. Mm. There's definitely a, a world music, um, well, influences there. But um, walk me through the history of the Gunpowder Band. How did the group come together <laughs> and what led you to relocate from Vancouver uh, to Vancouver from Montreal? Sure. Well, it, it's kind of interesting. I actually started the group in Vancouver in 2012. And this was a, a formative time for me. I was going to audio engineering school and I had just put together this six piece or seven piece as it was. And I actually have three or four records that you can't really find. And I recorded those within three years of being in Vancouver. And then I moved to Montreal. So it actually started here in Vancouver and then I moved to Montreal for the, um, for the reason of, of exploring a scene that I think was active and um you know doing all the things that you want to do as a early 20s person in Montreal and um that group was really great in Montreal i mean i still love all of those folks deeply i see them fr- uh frequently actually and well as frequently as i can and um and then uh there were a few things that transpired in Montreal that um felt as if it was the time there was coming to an end. I also kind of looked around and and saw what direction people go in and where they get caught in life. And as a Canadian musician, especially, you know, there's two different ways of thinking about the music industry. One is as an instrumentalist, and the other is as someone that produces and, and writes their own songs and is trying to promote a band and a brand which is what a band kind of is in the market. A, a, ba- I mean, a brand I, with a silent R. Right, and I, I've never been, a, been able to really do that well. But, um, you know, if, if you're trying to support yourself as a band and as a songwriter, um, there are some obstacles in the way. But the feeling um, is deceptive in that you feel like you're making headway towards that goal. But... It's such a vast distance to be able to gig enough, get enough royalties, etc., to be able to pay yourself, as well as um, I have an eight to ten piece band. So <laughs> this is a very difficult thing to do. As an instrumentalist, you can do it. There are quite a few folks in my group that um, live on music um, well. Session work helps. Session work, playing in ten bands, teaching. Um, in any case, I saw where... The, Montreal, a lot of the time, is you want to be king or queen or, or the the top of Montreal, and that's as far as your mind goes. So there's kind of a 
elusive um, kind of conceptual ceiling to Montreal unless you go over to Europe, which is what I did. Um, Toronto has a lot more freedom to um, pair with corporate support. Um, Vancouver held a special opportunity for me because I also work with indigenous communities. I was doing health impact assessments around the mining industry at that time. And I started to work with all these beautiful communities around BC. So that was um, an impetus for the move. But also I knew I had a band here and I, and I f figured out this new template of being a band leader and, and being a songwriter and having a group in Canada, which is, you know, not really relying too much on gigs for everyone's pay, but really getting good at writing grants, doing bigger projects. And Vancouver is a really good place to do bigger projects. Uh, there is money here uh, to be had and the festival circuit is great here. So there are, you know, the, the city is difficult, but there are pros to being here and uh, between here and Europe, and we're about to break into the States in a, in a deliberate way. Between that, uh, it seems to be a template that's working. Would you say, because you mentioned that with Montreal, the, the ceiling is, oh, you want to be the big kahuna in, in that scene, whereas I get the feeling, and you might be able to comment on this as well, is like with Vancouver, everyone knows that there isn't really like, yeah. that you kind of have to carve your own path here. You, you, well, and, and you know, I don't mean to um, be reductive in, um, in judging or making a value judgment on the Montreal scene. There are more musicians that have come out of Montreal than maybe anywhere else in Canada. It is a great place to, to do that. But I guess what I meant is in Vancouver, as you said, there isn't a lot of opportunity here. You're forced to seek it out elsewhere. You're forced to be creative with what you, what you want to do. In Montreal, um, I saw people play a lot um, in the city. You can play four times a month if you want to, or, or, or even more if you're doing smaller gigs at Grumpy's or open mics or acoustic or, or whatever it is. Um, but it, the semblance of that being progress kind of leads people off into... In, in, into a path where their their career and and other goals don't really come into it because you're playing four times a month, you're playing five times or six in times the same a month city. in the same city. But it seems like you're playing a lot. It seems like you should be making headway. But um, I I do think as a Canadian artist anywhere, um, because I love Montreal. Every time I go back, I think about moving back. I, it, it it seems more my city than Vancouver still. So I'm not I'm not talking shit i'm just uh i think it's necessary to be creative as a canadian musician especially if you're leading a band and um and so you know that fed into in, into my my new idea of doing it from vancouver as a base yeah fair enough i'm always curious about when I talk to people who have had experiences in different scenes in different major cities, besides Vancouver, mm -hmm. how they compare. Yeah, I mean, the most important thing, I mean, I think everyone in, this is the thing, I've concocted kind of a unique life for myself that involves music as its primary center, but uh, I do a lot of things in my life, and I, and I also travel quite a bit, and um, I've made, I have um, this beautiful uh, process that I've created 
that allows me to to tour in a lot of places and have a lot of flexibility with my players. And it's taken a long time. It's taken 15 years of running a six-piece or higher band, you know, to understand how to do all of this. But I think it's important for every musician to get out of Vancouver. (laughs) (laughs) And I think it's really important for a musician to get out of Vancouver if they've never lived in a city that has a scene that makes you improve. Because in Montreal, you know... you can go to the same bar or uh, or if you're on Saint Denis or Saint Laurent you know a string of bars uh venues that you you go to frequently and you don't need to know who's playing and you can see an act that makes you question how good you are because they're so good which is a good thing which is you. which is a, a, a it's completely essential and so i was just in montreal not too long ago and I went out to a, an acoustic show that was just solo acoustic players. And they were all incredible. Every single one of them. One of my friends, Leah Keeley, was playing. And um, they were all incredible. And that was just on a Monday night at Casa uh, with, you know, 35 people there. And they were all incredible. Better, better than, you know, you would find at a bigger show here. So j- being part of a scene to push yourself is the most important thing. And then the business of trying to create a sustainable career, uh, trying to progress through all of the channels of uh, diffusing your music to larger audiences, of supporting players, of producing good music, of getting the, uh, the in-studio recordings, good live recordings, all of the other business type stuff and understanding who you are as an artist can come um, from that, from, from understanding how to push yourself and seeing players that are way better than you, way more talented or, or, or that, I don't like that word, so just way more experienced. And it's very difficult to do in Vancouver because you go to a show every two months or something like this. And I used to go to a show, shows four times a week. So I think it's important just on that basis alone. You know, and if you don't want to move to Montreal, move to Nashville or, or Chicago or, or, or wherever else, Austin move to the states if if you got the balls to do it you should do it yeah it's just the truth there's uh it's uh well they got a hundred times the population down in the states there's just more opportunities there as a musician in north america quite frankly mm-hmm. but you know th- that being said canada punches above its weight we do um you know all, most of the big artists in the states a lot of them are canadian and the only difference is, so we have all the talent in the world here. The best, the best instrumentalists I've ever encountered in my life, anywhere I've gone in the world, are in Vancouver. Our Gordon Gardena and all, you know, Zubat and all of these play, players here are the best I've ever heard. It's just the venues aren't there and the city isn't very receptive to this kind of thing and people don't go out, they want to go hiking. So it's a hard place to be, but the talent is here. Mm-hmm. So it would be great to have a central kind of location for there to be that woodshedding amongst the scene. And I have a few ideas of how to get there, actually. <laughs> but I, I really think that in the next few years, you know, there's been a downward um, progression of venues closing in the city and all of this stuff. Pandemic and I, didn't help with that, the obviously. Pandemic didn't help. But even before that, the labor room closed and all this stuff. 
Yeah, Reggate was on the verge of closing before the pandemic. Right. Thankfully, they got that grant funding that was available because of the pandemic. The real almost almost closed. So it's a difficult city, but I I think there's a different template, a co-op template that can be done. But you just need to get people together with it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I definitely want to. I'm not sure if this will be a focus of conversation for this podcast, (laughs) but I'd love to... do a little more thinking. Yeah, I'd love to talk to you more about that within the context of this show as well. Sure. Um. So kind of have a fun, fun question that I wanted to, I have an idea about this, but I wanted to get your perspective on this history of gunpowder. Mm. It's an intriguing and eye catching band name. How did you go about choosing it? I have no idea. I, I remember, I think the aesthetics were the most important thing. Um, you know, the word spoke in a way that was as potent as I wanted the music to be. But I am also kind of a history nerd, and um, and the history of gunpowder itself. And I'm not going to get going on this because it'll be the whole goddamn podcast. But you know, it's a pivotal technology that just changed the world. And I think that just the aesthetics of the band name, and then uh, you know, it plays on my love of history. Um, and I don't know. I guess I guess I could you know pretend and concoct a few metaphors that may uh make sense like the you know how it started how the gunpowder started was um as an entertainment value explosion it was the chinese created fireworks and then it was transferred into military application that then changed the world but it did start as as seeing something um exciting and um bombastic to, to start with. So per, perhaps, perhaps that's what it was. It's funny you mentioned this and I wanted to share this fact because of course everyone knows it's, it has, it's, uh, originates from China, mm-hmm. but I, I did a little bit of digging on this mm-hmm. because there's, there's tons of research on it, but it's invention. There's, they speculate was likely an accidental byproduct from experiments by Chinese alchemists who were seeking to create the elixir of life. Yeah. They, they increased the, component of saltpeter in the the actual amalgamation and the increased amount of saltpeter i believe was what created the combustible quality of it but then there was um a lot of trade through the silk uh road um and innovation on it and genghis khan actually was one of the first to use it for military application but um the islamic um, nations as well had a very big part in innovating. And if you go to Turkey or, or another Islamic country, th- they do um, subscribe to the notion that they invented the, mm. the, true, the true final uh, composition of, of gunpowder. Interesting. Um, so it was kind of a global affair, a Eurasian affair. Yeah, which I guess, yeah, I think about with like the, the shared history fitting it plays into just the the variety of influences you draw from speaking of which who are some of those formative artists who influence your approach to music i ask as to my ears i can certainly make comparisons between what you're doing and the works of tom waits and captain beefheart for mm. example yeah <clears throat> for sure Ca- tom waits um the, the, i i you know i, I grew up playing the blues um 
as well as jazz. I started to play jazz quite early, but I, I grew up listening to Howlin' Wolf and actually, m- more significantly, Blind Willie Johnson. And Blind Willie Johnson, Howlin' Wolf and Tom Waits all kind of have this commonality of uh, completely destroyed vocal cords. I mean, none of them are supposed to sound the way that they do. Uh, like Louis Armstrong or something. Louis Armstrong or something. Tom Waits, you can literally hear the decay in his voice. For sure. And I've already had one vocal surgery. Oh, my gosh. I mean, that's mo- mostly because of smoking and drinking after a Doesn't show. Doesn't help, but you, you know. know. But to sound the way that I sound when I belt or when Tom Waits does, I mean, Howlin' Wolf has a little different makeup of vocal cords. But to do that, that's a, that's a technique. I mean, it's a technique for me to do that. It's, I, it's not, it doesn't just happen. It took me 10 years to do. So uh, basically, you're breaking your, vo- your vocal cords. You're, you're using them in a way that isn't conducive to sustainability. So uh, I got uh, nodes in it, and I had to get a, a, a laser surgery on it. Uh, since that hasn't been a problem, which is good. Um, but those artists, those early blues artists, are kind of my vocal uh, inspirations. Uh, I started to compose for larger ensembles quite early in my life. I, I'm not taught. I just learned how to notate, and I brought these compositions to horn sections and string sections early on in life, and, and, I, and I made a lot of mistakes. And the way that I learned how to compose was through other instrumentalists showing me all the mistakes that I've made. So I've always loved these very expansive arrangements, um, where that comes from. Greenwood, Johnny Greenwood's um, soundtracks and string work. And, and then I just layer the blues voice on top of that. That's basically what the History Gunpowder is. And on that, I mean, your sound incorporates elements of a number of genres, including jazz, art rock, and the blues. We've talked about world music as, as well. When you started making music under the History of Gunpowder moniker, was this artistic vision for the band fully formed, or did it evolve and develop over time? I don't think so. I, I don't think it's formed. I don't think it's. Uh, it shouldn't ever be truly formed. I don't think. I think that's horseshit. If someone can, I, is it okay? That I'm yeah, you can swear. This? Okay. Yeah. I think it's horseshit if anyone thinks that. Let me put it this way: the every album should be different. I, nothing should be anything, but I think that that's incredibly boring if you're going down the same road. Uh, so it wasn't fully formed. But the compositions were always really interesting. When I listened back to the album that was released in 2012, I couldn't sing worth a damn. Like, I hate my vocal performance. But the songs were really interesting. All the arrangements were really interesting. And I think that's what this band has been. It's Because I have other projects. I've produced lots of records. I've, I write a lot of songs outside of the History of Gunpowder world. But what it is is all the songs that are either intimidating or scary in some sort of way in that I don't know how I'm going to do it in that I, I, it's either too vulnerable or technically I don't know how we're going to do this. Um, those are the songs that I bring to the history gun pattern. And those are the only songs that I bring. No, no song. We don't play a single song that I'm not in one shape or form terrified of in one way or another. And I think that's what it's been for my whole life is here's this project where I can bring the kind of most interesting ideas that I have to. And on that, 
as we mentioned, history has a large musical ensemble composed of a wide range of collaborators. Who are you currently working with and how you know, do they help bring your songs to life in the studio and on stage? Yeah, so I'm you know, in the middle of all of these geniuses that are in this band, I'm quite unsatisfactory in my understanding and technical proficiency in music. Everyone in the band is so talented that it's 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 really just half of it is that I feel honored to be in the same room as them. And, you know, I was talking with Cole Tinney, the keys player in the band, and I, I don't know how I would do anything without him. He's a monster, and he and he continues to get better. The The weird thing about Cole is that he will continue to practice. I don't practice guitar anymore. I did that when, when or, you know, I played eight hours a day when I was, when I was in my teens and early twenties, I I I I skipped everything to play eight hours a day. It was my it was the only thing I wanted to do. I don't practice anymore. I haven't in- improved as a guitarist. He is better than I could ever be as an instrumentalist, and he keeps getting better. And that's incredible to see. Bradshaw is actually a professor at Cap University. He's your uh, slide player, he's right? A slide player and now bass, and he's kind of he's taught almost everyone in the band. Wow! At one point or another, uh, Nick, the drummer, Nick Folkt is this amazing songwriter. He has a beautiful voice, but it, his understanding of harmony is far beyond the normal. And, and having him in the group, he really helps improve any, any musical idea that I have. I'll bring a song on purpose. You know, most songs are done, but I'll bring them 70%. And I'll, and I'll say, how, how can we change this? And, and we'll bring their fingerprints into it. Because their fingerprints are much more valuable than than my own at this point. The 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 initial impetus of the song, what it means and and the character of it, uh, I'm really good at that. But Nick has always really been great at um, understanding the momentum of a song, creating interesting parts, cutting things out. He's a great critic and and actually possibly the only writing partner I've ever had in my life, really. So he's he's really great. He's the drummer, and he, and I've been playing with him since I was 16 years old. We formed a, 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 a prog rock band when I was 16 and he was 18. Like, I've known this cat forever. David Brown is the new tenor player, and, and he has really beautiful phrasing. Um, and we're starting to incorporate his way of soloing and his voice into more things. You know, Katie on violin is um, a beautiful addition. Her tone and, and her, her, her phrasing is, can, can go on top of anything. Um, Rory is a new addition trumpet player. He he has a really interesting tone. It can it can go on top of anything, and his quality is seeping its way into every arrangement. And of course, Mike Allen is in there. And uh, you know, there's more folks, but the main point is that I can bring any arrangement or any idea to these guys, and they'll be able to do it. And they'll usually be able to do it in one rehearsal, which is frustrating. Um, frustrating. So, <laughs> because I would love to rehearse more, but we don't need to rehearse that much. Oh, because okay, all you. of these guys are so good that I can bring a really complex idea, and by the end of the like, yeah, th- got three it. or four hour <laughs> rehearsal, we're good. Like we just did a tune. You know, most a lot of the songs um, take longer than that, of course, but but they're they're that good. So anyhow, I don't know if I answered your question. That was a long ramble, but I I just love everyone around around me in this group. And this, I'm going to guess, has to do with who you're working with, of course, but many of your songs are long, multi-part compositions that allow room for experimentation and improvisation. 
is there like a specific energy you're always trying to capture on record or broadcast to an audience in a live setting or does this come about from working with your team this is just a preference it's not um prescriptive in any way but i've never really thought about the audience at all when i write until recently actually um I've never, if you listen to any History Gunpowder song uh, in the last five records, you won't be able to hear a single riff or a hook. There's no hook and there's no real riff. It's all songwriting Mm -hmm. without any of those things, which is kind of incredible that it's gotten this far because those are the two things that people go towards is like a catchy riff with an upbeat, a danceable beat yeah and a hook it's like anti-pop songwriting even captain beefheart did that captain beefheart was playing with those most important components of a song and making them sound absurd that's what he was doing but he was playing with those components it's been very sludgy um up until now it's been very slow and in the last six months actually i'll I'll tell this story we played the wise hall with a circus and um and I was so upset after the gig, <laughs> which is very annoying uh, for everyone else, I'm sure. It's very melodramatic. But I was so upset that I rewrote our entire set, and we learned a new set six months before festival season. Everything we're playing now, we only have one or two songs that we were playing six months ago. And for an eight to ten piece band, this is hard to do. Mm-hmm. So these new songs are upbeat. They do have a backbeat. They do... They they are in that way different, and I think it's because you know it's as a especially as a lead singer, it's very easy to feel the audience, and when they pull back and when they don't and when they love it and all of these things, and uh, I completely changed the way that I wrote, have been writing in the, in the past year, um, and it's much less, I guess, egotistical or self-important, I, w- I would think, or I guess the way to say this is, it is more about creating a moment with everyone together at this point. And I've never really thought that way before. So now it feels great when everyone is in the same moment at the show. And uh, I think that's achieved easier with, uh, with a backbeat and with and with all of these components that people naturally latch onto. And I've organically come to this place as a songwriter. Um, you know, this didn't happen for any other reason than I think I had changed my mindset in my life to a more um, optimistic view of the world, I think, in the past couple of years. So, I've, I've, so in response to the question, it's important it's been important to bring everyone to the same moment at the show. That's about it. So it's interesting that you mentioned the, you know, you've developed a more optimistic view of the world recently. While certainly I've noticed that there's a, there can be a very serious and darkly theatrical element in having an old world feel as well, built mm. into the aesthetic of the band, a song that stands out to me particularly as really particularly menacing is the song first come for peace off of the epileptic volume one especially those hand claps that's just i love that bone chilling yeah where do these aesthetic elements come from like are there any films or plays or works of literature that you've been inspired by yeah i don't know i think i am a visual composer though um those hand claps are are such a um i'm so i'm i'm not 
I'm quite proud of those hand claps. Uh, I've never heard anything like them before, and it took a long time to figure out how to do them. And it involved 16 people in a church and two different editors. And it sounds like a wave almost. It, I call them waterfall hand claps. Yeah, waterfall hand claps. And uh, anyways, I I do love that song. Uh, what was the question? Oh, just um, where you know uh, where do all the aesthetic elements come from? Like what what I don't know. I think to? I'm a pretty melodramatic person. Mm. <laughs> a lot of musicians are. So I don't think you're alone. And. And I think that's okay. Yeah. I mean, humans attach themselves to symbols. That's that's what we do. We're we're symbol generating creatures, animals. We wear symbols all the time. We we wear symbols. Um, we follow symbols. Uh, symbols govern our world, and I think, uh, I think everyone does that in one way or another. And I think I was attached early on to quite melodramatic symbols <laughs> and i and i'm fine with it actually i th- i think it's made for a really interesting life um but uh you know i've also had kind of a um dark inner voice and i do think that the only important thing to do with songwriting or with music is to be honest and so it it does it is telling of of some of the uh, harder times I've had, maybe that that as, that song in particular is is about um, is about knowing that you can't be with with a loved one, uh, and and basically just allowing it to happen. Uh, and there are some asymmetries in in that in that breakup that are heartbreaking. And I I think you know I, I do think that I've achieved honesty, which is. Um, important to me and i i'm proud of that that i have achieved honesty through songwriting in in the songs that i write um but you're right the aesthetics are very tom waitsy um you know guy in a back alley and it's raining rain dogs and all these things i think they've changed a little bit actually but during that the recording of that album you know that was in montreal and that was very much where i was at for sure yeah, like when I listen to your music, sometimes I think of like, oh, this is like the perfect soundtrack to a, a neo noir movie set in New Orleans at the turn of the right. century or something yeah. like that. Like, yeah, yeah, for sure, I can see that. That's great. See, I, I, I love that. I, you know, yeah, that's great. Which lead, led me to think uh, before you know I had a chance to watch some of the footage that Swallows was going to be a short film that you did the soundtrack for, but. It's it's not, but it's, a it's full fucking film. Yeah, it's full fucking film, and its own, <laughs> and it's a, a a different animal. But what we're absolutely going to get into that. So your next major release, uh, Swallows, is a concert film, and its accompanying soundtrack is also coming out around the same time. How would you describe this film as an audiovisual experience? Well, this is the problem, isn't it? This has been the PR nightmare that I'm in because it doesn't make that much sense. But basically. What I think the film will portray is a group of people that came together and um, host a lot of love for each other and can't help but create together, and they're all kind of freaks. And you get to see these unique, um, idiosyncratic personalities in their natural habitat. And uh, that's punctuated by live concert footage but the film is look at all these strange people uh the videographer that 
we worked with on this. His name is Adam Amir, and he's a documentarian in a, in every way. He, the way that he lives is to observe, and he can capture moments, and he captured some damn crazy moments, and um, you got to see that on the film. So it's a it's a view into in, into maybe one of the best li- uh, weeks of my life, which was we converted a church into a studio for a whole week and we produced in that church. And that's where this album is from. The album was recorded in a week in that church. Some of the songs were, were written, rehearsed and recorded in that church uh, without any prior ideas. It was one of my policies. We can't come in with any ideas. We need to do instrumental tracks today now from the ideas in our head currently. And it was a, it was half an experiment. Um, on the audio side and then on the video side when we were experimenting and recording these instrumental tracks that end up being some of the soundtrack and some of the short films, the video crew was out um, capturing Cumberland and capturing the scene and capturing the, the behind the scenes stuff that became the, the short films. So the, the actual production of this was very experimental. And I think what I think what comes out of it is is something really unique. I I don't I don't think I've ever seen anything like it before. Um, and that's not boastful. That's just it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense that anyone would want to do any of this. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not going to do it again. It's taken over two years to finish. Um, we got a big old grant from Canada Council, which was great. Uh, but I'm really proud of it, and it's actually been a pleasure to produce. The process has been really interesting to me. The way you described it reminded me of something, if I can bring up Beefheart again. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the creation of the Trout Mask Replica album, but he, <laughs> and I, I, I can't imagine it's the exact same conditions, I also kind of hope not, but what he did was he kept his band together in a house for a full year, and they rehearsed together, and they were basically isolated. And he gave them, it was very cultish. He gave them all like their own unique names. And they, they worked on the album for a full <laughs> year. Like there was one guy who was allowed to leave like once a week to get groceries. And that was it. Like they were just in that little space. So I've always thought about like, oh man, wouldn't it have been wild for there to be a documentarian capturing yeah. that bizarre process of creating that? Yeah. And you know, I've always, I think I sound pretty pretentious when I talk about my own band, <laughs> but it's only because I care quite a bit about it, right? And I think about it a lot. I think about it all, all day. And I've always hated to, when I hear, it's very pretentious to say, you know, like the process is the most important thing, but it's, it's fucking true. You know, creating these, um, the opportunity to have moments that were shaped by the context that's that's how really great, especially um, improvisational or experimental or uh, you know what whatever. That that's how good music is is made, and that's how really unique music is made. It really does depend on the process. And I knew that coming into this, and I knew we were never going to be able to do this again. Uh, really, I mean, we probably could, but I I knew that the process had to be interesting and we had an opportunity a rare opportunity to do something interesting with the process and i'm really glad that we did how did the properties of the church itself especially its famed 19th century pipe organ shape and inform the sound of the audio recordings uh well there were swallows in the rafters ah hence the name of the release release. and i actually went to the church six months prior to the residency 
to write in the church. So I actually wrote these songs in the church. Um, they're all new songs except for Moonshiner. And I wrote them in the church to the properties of the church. That's why they came out the way they did, which is more nuanced acoustic music, which is completely different than our normal loud as hell uh, feedback type thing. Um, the room itself, we had room mics on all the songs and we used them. In the tracks, you can, there, we don't use uh, reverb, that much reverb from digital. All, all the reverb is from three different stereo pairs that I had throughout the church. So um, it's a beautiful place, um, especially for acoustic music. And, and if you play in a balanced way. Uh, and so with these players, we did play in a naturally balanced way because they're all good at what they do. And so we could use room mics to, to get a lot of the sound. So there's lots of that. There's lots of the room in there. Churches and other places of worship often have their own unique energy to them. What were the vibes like while you were creating in a spiritual space, as it were? <clears throat> yeah. I think that's why I wanted to do it, was because I, I, ha I had an RV that has since been <laughs> blown up. Uh, act, literally, it lit on fire oh two God. weeks ago <laughs> and burnt to the ground. Oh dear! <laughs> and I think that's going to be the credits. It's just a it's just a <laughs> video of my RV burning. Um, but anyways, I was staying in that by the church, and I had a keys to the church, so I would go in there at any time of the day or any time of the night, which I did. And um, I don't. It it offered moments of stillness um especially by yourself kind of like if you walk down to a lake by yourself and you can spend a second with yourself it's a little bit like that and the song 751 that we released recently i have see once again this is going to sound pretentious but i have no idea where that song came from and i think it's one of the best songs i've ever written and it and it could only have happened in that church um, the other songs I could have probably written elsewhere. I had some, I had some chord arrangements that I brought back, but that, that song, there was, there was something really special about that space that, that allowed me to write that whole song. So it does impact you, especially when you're running around in the rat race and you get to a, a nice big room that's all wood and has great light coming through it. And you can, you don't need any microphones and you can just hear your arch top guitar and sing into great acoustics, you're going to write all fucking day if you have that, which I did. I was going to say, untitled of the songs I got to listen to and the videos I got to watch from from the album, uh, yeah, that really stands out. It's a great song. A really, I don't yeah, know where the fuck it came from. So unique. But it's a great song. And and the three, you know, Leo Johnson and, and Delicate and Lola White, those three background vocalists were made it um anyways yeah I, I really love that song be curious to see that performed as well yeah it's hard to maybe we'll do it for september 1st mm. I don't know. the filmmaking process of course comes with its own set of rewards and challenges compared to say recording an album in a more traditional way what were some hurdles that you had to overcome and some memorable experiences you had creating this film Oh man. Um well one of Big the, question. one of my favorite scenes is a 
<laughs> is a party night that we, you know, we would go, so we would get up at nine, we'd go into the church, we'd record all day, just ideas we had, hopefully something came out of it, and we're about to release a song called, the, the title track called Swallows, and it's an instrumental tune that we wrote and rehearsed and recorded in one afternoon. And then we would have dinner, and then when the sun went down, we would record these songs that you've seen because we needed the lighting rig to work, so the sun had to be done. And then after that, we would go party, basically. And we, w one night, we went over to Josie's house, who, who was on audio, and they also are an amazing vocalist. We went to their house, and we're all dressed up in... <laughs> we all dressed up in dresses and had a brilliant night, and it was all captured. And so one of the scenes in the movie is that night where we are all in complete drag or, or, or whatever we found in the tickle trunk. And um, on the funnest of substances, and, uh, and, and we were all jamming until you know, six in the morning. So you know, that type of thing is, seems to be common, but the, the feeling of that night was really beautiful and absurd. And of course, absurdity is part of this whole group. Um, other than that, my favorite parts were after a good take was done and then we shut all the lights off and we were just in a church sitting on a pew talking about the day with a bottle of wine. And, you know, that's, that's also pretty good. Swallows will be the second live album of new material that the band has released after Live History in 2022. What do off-the-floor recordings of the band in action capture that's absent from more traditional studio recordings? Yeah. Yeah, our last album was live, too. The main thing with that is I'm an audio engineer, and the studio albums are so complicated and over-the-top, completely unnecessarily, that they take three years to make. Um, you know, the, the song that you mentioned before, First Come for Peace, that song took two years. Wow. Because there's 16 strings on it, there's, there's hundreds of claps, edits of claps. There's two timpani parts. There's three different, like, it, it's, it's ridiculous. It makes no damn sense. And these live albums are a way for me to be like, oh, I have no editing. I can send this straight to the mixer. Um, the efficiency. They're just so, I'm working on three studio albums right now. Oh, my gosh. Um, one of which was almost done, and then I cut three songs from it. Like, it, it, it's just neurotic. It's not okay. But the, the live albums are really great. Um, and, and, we, and this band sounds so good. Like th these, these videos that are being released, a lot of these were one take. Whoa. And that's obnoxious. Like that's incredible. Um, so, you, you know, I, I also have a, a love of video work and i produced a lot of this videography as well so that's really exciting to me as well and pushing out this type of content is really good but but i don't really give a shit about that so anyways it, it's just an easier thing to do i can finish an album in a year or six months with live recording and it's really fun to do all together you mentioned that some of the compositions for this release were developed while you were going through the process of recording and, and shooting the film were there any songs that dramatically changed shape over the course of the writing and recording process? No, but the the interesting thing that changed was so we shot this whole we shot six songs 
had all this background or behind the scenes material, had all of this short film material, all this stuff. And we had scenes like um, Adam, the videographer, followed Leo Johnson around in their pre-show ritual. And, and it was about four minute continuous scene. And that became a scene in the movie. And so I had to write a soundtrack to it. So I, would, I went in my, my studio and I, over three sessions, in three sessions I had a soundtrack to it. So there's all of these surprise soundtracks that happened throughout the film. So if I was to put every like, soundtrack excerpt, the, the actual album would be like 12 songs. Mm. But it's going to come out and be seven. So, Just the ones that you yeah, are so, like the core songs from the film. Right. So the film, the film has a lot of music on it uh, that were surprises. And I would go in with, with band members and we would just watch the film and go, oh, you know what? Let's add some, let's add some pedal steel here. And we'd add six pedal steel tracks and then that becomes, a, that becomes a, a soundtrack. So there was a lot of interesting sections like that, which is why I enjoyed the process so much. Was, it was a very haphazard and spontaneous way of putting something together, but it ended up being really great. That's awesome. Speaking of just... Uh, as I mentioned, with the context of the last two releases, both both being live, do you see the group releasing new music exclusively as live recordings going forward? No, no, we're we're getting in the studio in October to finish the Epileptic Volume Two. Ah, I was I was wondering if there's going to be a Volume Two. Yeah, that's a, kind of the curse a, of the Volume One. Volume Two is being recorded right now, and uh, I'm also recording another album at the same time. So I'm recording two albums at the same time, basically, that are going to be released st- as a staggered kind of flow um and uh and then i have the next one ready after that which i i, I the the one after that i want to just have a string quintet actually similar to the sylvia perez cruz what i was talking about that my at the start of the podcast um i i wanted an album that's basically just strings just vocals and strings yeah oh that'll be cool yeah so i've started to write those arrangements um I'm recording about 15 songs right now, which is which for the history of gunpowder is like four albums, like yeah. three albums. Each album has six or seven songs, and that's an, so hour, long. that's an hour. Yeah. You know? Um. So, anyways, yeah, I'm recording two right now, two studio albums. You're approaching that Ty Seagal, King Gizzard, and the Lizard Wizard, Frank Zappa level of output. Well, not really. <laughs> I mean, it's been three fucking years since the last studio album. If I if I had all the time in the world, I would. Yeah. I, if I had, if I didn't work so much and have all these other interests and and have to do a lot of things, I I would put out four albums a year. I could I could satisfy that amount of output with with what I have, but uh, it takes a lot of money because <laughs> <laughs> because for example on the the history gun uh volume one the epileptic volume one I think there's twenty eight players on that. Holy. Or 26 players or something. Well, you mentioned timpani on there's t- yeah, first come pieces. There's, there's a lot of that. ridiculous yeah. stuff going on. So anyways, yeah. Still, that's a, yeah, three at once. That's very impressive. Just because I don't know how long it can take even just to put out one thing. Yeah. Yeah. With Swallows, what would you say really kind of makes the material more distinct from your past releases? There seems to be more of a focus on, say, texture and atmosphere as opposed to those chaotic swings in energy, especially in the live show that you see. Yeah, it's not electric at all. The drums are in two songs, 
most songs don't have drums in it. It's it's like a folk record, um, which is something that I've always wanted to. I mean, I write ten folk songs to one history song, like I wrote one today. Um, so, you know, I have quite a catalog of this type of tonality. Uh, you know, for a lot of this, I was either using my arch top or it's an acoustic sound, you know, and um, all upright bass, no electric bass. Oh, that's not true. There's electric bass, in it. but mostly upright bass, you know, strings, um, clarinet. That's all. It's all very acoustic sounding stuff. Usually we use all that stuff, but it's all fed through distortion and sub basses and, and pedals and amps and it gets crazy. So this is the only thing. The only time when the history has been in this tonality. Um, and I think it'll kind of stay that way, actually, because all the things moving forward are pretty big sounding. Mm. Um, and our festival set is big and crazy. and So it, 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 is, it will be unique in, in the catalog of, of this band. That's really cool. What excites you most about sharing the Swallows film to your fans in the music community? Um, I care more about the people that are in it seeing it. To me, it's a, to me, it's a, um, it's memorabilia of that time, that, that week during the pandemic when everyone was broke and no one was playing shows and we came together as a band and it was very life affirming at a time when I think a lot of us needed that. And, um, I just, I'm glad that we have such a exhaustive, um, documentation of that week and what it felt like. And, uh, and I think that will be the thing that's interesting for everyone else to look inside of the, this really important time of all of these people's lives and that feeling will will translate into others and say oh yeah the like you know like these beautiful blissful times do happen um around maybe some of the darker points or some of the uh points in life where you're just kind of putting your head down and working uh these weeks months or moments that are life-affirming do happen. And I was privileged enough to document one of mine. And what do you have planned to share the film? It's being shown at the Rio Theater on September 1st. So this is really cool. Um, September 1st at the Rio, it'll be played on the big screen, uh, which I'm really happy about. But I think even more than that, um, there's a show happening afterwards, but Gordon Gardena's Haram is playing with us. And for those of you who don't know who Haram is, um, or Gordon Gardena for that matter, Gordon Gardena is this Juno Award winning guitarist who has been, you know, a big influence on me for my entire life, actually. Um, he has this group called Haram that's basically a 10 piece uh, group of the best instrumentalists in town. Like you heard how positively I spoke about my band. 
all everyone in my band looks up to these guys. These these are the heavy hitters in the in the Canadian scene. These these are the best instrumentalists I've ever heard in my life. And they all play in one band called Haram. Wow. And they're playing basically Iraqi folk tunes, Iraqi and Egyptian folk tunes. So that that harmony of Iraqi music, Persian music, but they're all free jazz players. So as you can imagine, no one is no one if if you haven't heard Haram and you come to the show, you will have never heard anything like this before in your life. And and it's an honor to even share the stage with them. I don't know how it took me months to get this <laughs> to get them to play basically because they're all such busy. There's m- multiple people that are Juno award winners in this band. If not like most of them are. So um you know that it's beautiful that we'll be able to see the film on the big screen and then we'll do a show but it's even more beautiful that haram is going to be on stage with us so please come to the show buy tickets early and come to the film which starts at seven so it's early and then we have a little bit of a break and then we have a set by haram and then a set by us and uh it's going to be an awesome awesome event yeah sounds like it sounds really unique and again like you're also only local band I can think of that's made a project like this and been able to release something like this. Yeah, I don't know anyone else who's done, who's done this. Yeah, I can't think of, and that's once again not boastful. It is actually an obstacle because I don't understand how to promote it <laughs> <laughs> or what to do with it because there are n- not many templates. But. Um, like I said, the process has been beautiful and, and it, and it, and it has personal significance. So you kind of need to see it through. For sure. Speaking about live shows with a uh, history, live presentation has grown to become quite elaborate. And this year, 2023 alone, you've played two circus shows featuring trapeze artists, gymnasts, and burlesque dancers. What do you think it is about your music that lends itself to grand on stage theatrics i don't know i think it's um i think it's more than anything my love to produce i produce all of these shows and i really love just bringing things that no one has seen that that not a lot of people see very frequently before so i think it's more like all right if we're gonna fucking put on a show let's put on a fucking show you know i think that's the thought is that you know what let's put a little more work into it entertain people yeah, and the other band that does that in in the city that's really great is Brass Camel. Oh yeah, I was just gonna say they 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 are also very good at being like, okay, we're gonna put on a show, we're putting on a show, you know, and um, and I think that's just the product the producer's brain is like, okay, yeah, we got these great bands, we can already kind of sell this place out, but let's bring in a cir- let's bring in some tra- trapeze artists. Like, <laughs> it doesn't really make any sense, and actually makes my life a lot harder. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I just enjoy that bringing a little bit of absurdity into it. Who are some bands or artists that you admire for their stagecraft? Uh, Mars Volta. <laughs> oh my God, yeah. Um, it's a bit of a different energy. They're chaotic as fuck. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, but but like that's what I grew up on too, right? It was like, it was like flamenco and Mars Volta and blues and jazz. But um, I don't know. I... Really what I'm looking for when I go to a show, to tell you the truth, almost to a fault, is if it seems honest. Because it's really easy to contrive, to be contriving. Is mm-hmm. that a word? It's easy to 
create music that you actually don't really believe that much. But you're hitting all of the spots that make it catchier or anything else, and people will like it because of X, Y, and Z. Yeah. That all pop stars have or that all what whatever it is. It's it's really easy it's easy to do that. That mathematical formula. There is a formula. I've I, I was an, an engineer. I've been in the room when producers before they send the person to LA, they put a demo together and they hit the formula and they write it on the whiteboard. Like there is. And I know what it is. Mm-hmm. Um and it it's kind of disgusting to me. Um but but I mean to to, to each their own. Um so in any case, I think I think honesty is is really important uh, when you're flailing around or or when you have your stage antics and all that. For example, I don't care about Kiss. That doesn't really interest me. It's awesome that Rammstein has a bunch of fire going everywhere. That's really cool. I don't really give a shit. If people are really honest in what they're doing, it impacts me a lot more. And I think Mars Volta. <laughs> was honest in that chaos. That chaos seems really honest to me. You know I, I don't mean? think you can plan Cedric and Omar just flailing I, I about. I don't think like you can plan it. I think you need a lot of cocaine and acid to do that. And which is also a very strange combination. Yes. But <laughs> but they did it, you know, and and I think I think it I think that's what it really is is if, if it's honest or not. If if you're not um flailing about on stage and you're uh folk singer with your acoustic guitar and you're sitting down, I'll be just as enthralled. If there's if there's if there's a very transparent honesty coming from you, so uh, you know it just seems that I really enjoy that type of theatrics um, and love exploding with that type of energy, and I can't help it. It it really is cathartic to me to do, but um, I don't require it in in being an audience member for someone else. Yeah, and I imagine, I think in part, well, I can also say from seeing you, I've seen you play without every, you know, all the extra dancers and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I know you guys send it without other people running around on stage. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And kind of on that, how do you see your live presentation growing and changing going forward? It's, you know what, the, something has happened <laughs> this this summer. I really feel like we're a different band than we were six months ago. I really do, and I don't know, I don't know why. But you know, we just headlined Kispiox Valley Music Festival, which was a, a very life affirming and beautiful event. We pl- we were a headlining act at Jazz Fest this year on the big stage. We um, we played uh, Tiny Lights Fest in a headlining slot second to last headlines. We we have all of these great slots at festivals this year, which is amazing. And it's a, it's actually where we should be in a festival. We can't really play during the day. It doesn't really make any fucking sense. But, you know, we're about to play Rogue Fest later in August. And this new set that I wrote, um, all these new songs, um, it has completely changed our live, the live experience. And... Uh, it's really beautiful, actually. Uh, so it's we sound like a totally different different group right now. So it's already changing, and I think we're going further and further towards that as well, which has a lot more funk and a lot more up tempo uh, stuff in it. Actually, would you say also there's some more dynamics that have come into play because of how strip back's not the right word, but how much more 
textural the swallows material is. Yeah, I think I went to the other the other extremity. Yes. Yeah, I yeah. think I was like, you know what, that's great. And you know, songs like Gasoline Tree or Bliss or like these are slow and beautiful and they mean a lot to me. But let's just fucking drop all this and let's dance and be completely absurd together for a little bit here. Ah, okay. And I think that's kind of come out. Um, and yeah, and yeah, I think that's just come out like that. So just yeah, leaning. I guess leaning back the other way and going like, all right, let's be swinging and smash shit. <laughs> yeah, and and playing groovy stuff and just, um, I don't know. I saw so I saw Caribou play, and it was the first concert after the pandemic. Oh yeah, that was like February twenty twenty two or something. Yeah, like that. I wanted to go. I had something else going. It was on at the Commodore, and there was this one song, and I kind of like Caribou, not that much, but there was this one song. And it's all, it's mostly electronic. There's this one song that they brought the feeling up to a fever pitch with a big synth line and they kept it there for like 10 minutes. And I looked around and I saw people just lose their shit and lose themselves in that moment and in that, you know, sharp 11 chord that was held for a long time. And um, it... It kind of, it was a moment that kind of clicked. It was like, we can actually all be involved in the same thing at the same time. And at that point, I started writing differently from a caribou show. And then I saw, you know, my good friends, Five Alarm Funk, and I've seen them many times, and Mike plays with them, and I know, and I know them. But, you know, seeing them afterwards, just seeing people say fuck it and dancing, and that, and that cathartic experience that everyone requires and seeks from music. Um, it's one of the first times in my life where I find it potent for myself uh, and not the pensive perspective, you know, crafting the song and the lyrics and that stuff is a part of me. But now that feeling of dancing away your problems for a moment and feeling and getting back to yourself for those moments, I think that that's has become more significant for some reason. Yeah, especially, you know, the that frustrating two years in which, like, no, you can't do that. Right. It's like, no, 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 fuck you, I can do it now, and I'm going right. to go even harder. Yeah. What does the future have in store for the history of gunpowder? You know, I, I, I'm, so, I've, I'm so optimistic, and I'm so happy... We continuously do, we continuously hit milestones. Um, and we haven't, in my opinion, we haven't even really gotten started yet. Like, the band is great. We don't sound, we're quite unique in our sound. Uh, booking agents, managers, uh, festivals are coming to us now. Oh, that's great. And, um, we're really, you know, this is really, been going on because of the force of will that I've had to pushing it through and hitting my head up against the fucking wall. And that has changed. And now we've become valuable, I think, in the gatekeepers of, of the industry, which is great. But more than that, I am more excited than ever at what I'm writing, what the band is doing, how it feels on stage um, is really lovely. And... um 
you know, for, moving forward, we're going to keep playing festivals. We're going to keep producing a lot of great albums. I want to start doing, I have two music videos that I want to push out. I can't wait for the Epileptic Volume 2 to come out. Um, and I think we're going to actually get the infrastructure we need to become a real force, uh, you know, across Canada and into the States. And, and we have much more support in Europe now too. So I'm really optimistic about what's what our potential is um and you, you know we we have made so much uh we've grown so much from ha not having a lot there's always been a deficiency of resources as they are with all musicians but there's always been a deficiency of resources and time and now it seems that that's changing so you know, it's only up from here. That's great to hear. And I, of course, with this podcast, and with the show, that's what I, that's what I, I want to see. I just want to see bands from here who I know are awesome, who I know are good, who I know, you know, need, <laughs> need that or deserve that additional like media, media exposure and push. I want to see them succeed. So yeah. yeah, that's fantastic to hear. Well, it's great. You're doing it. Yeah, I'm doing it for a while. Yeah. <laughs> this is actually the penultimate uh, episode uh, that will be released before our 150th episode. Oh, nice. So, yeah. Congrats. Working on something something special. I want to do something special for that one, oh, nice. especially because the 100th episode was released during the pandemic, and so it's like I couldn't really do anything crazy for that. So, overdue. What local bands or artists would you recommend we check out or bring on the show for a future episode? Um... Holy Felix. Oh, I've heard. I've been hearing Holy things Felix about Holy Felix. Holy Felix is about to get yeah. going. He's about to get going. He has a show at the Cobalt on August 18th, and he's about to release an album that's been brewing for a bit, and I think he's really talented. Um, Cat Madden, who's actually in Squamish. Um, I assume you've had Brass Camel on here. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I had... Um, uh, Daniel on uh, last season. Yeah. Um, you know, get Mike Allen on here if if and when, probably and if, he releases Space Elevator album. Oh, yeah, yeah. That I know about maybe Space in Elevator. The, I don't know what, I don't know, but you can get him in here. Um, I mean, you can, Bad Magic um, with Eric. Yeah, it'd be good to catch up with Eric. Eric would be good. Um Kate Yan. There's a lot. There's actually quite a few folks coming up right now that are kind of younger. Make me feel. Actually, no, I don't feel old. But I feel. But there's there's a lot of um, inexperienced younger cats coming up mm -hmm. that are now gaining the experience and feeling it out. I think Kate Yan is one of them. Uh, Cordelia Donovan. Cordelia, you should have Cordelia on. Yeah, there's there's a few. I could even tell you more if you Ah, like. you gave me about half a dozen, so yeah, that's pretty good. How are you feeling? You want to end it there? Sure. Yeah, great. Well, thanks again, Alex. Uh, really excited about the, the movie you have coming out. Give the deets one more time about the release and all that. Yeah, September 1st at the Rio Theater. Uh, the, the film is being shown at 7 p.m. Uh, this is an opportunity for you to support an indie film, an, an indie film made by an indie band which is very i mean i don't know if you'll ever see something like this again <laughs> <laughs> so 
come on out for the film. We would love to sell this out. And then there's a show that involves, you know, one of the best bands uh, full of the best musicians in Vancouver, bar none, in Canada, bar none. So it's going to be a really special evening. Uh, get your tickets early on the Rio Theatre's website. Fantastic. Great. Thank you, brother. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, James Olson. Before we close this episode off with one more song by our featured guest, I just want to let you know that you can keep up with what we're up to on Facebook and Instagram at Pacific Sound Radio and on our website at pacificsoundradio.com. If you like the show, you can give us a five-star rating and a positive review on your podcast platform of choice that lets you leave reviews. This is Untitled Number 751. Black swallows on the beach Tears in disbelief You're gonna rise when you do Well, burn it at the door Everyone's sick for more You're gonna rise when you do Yeah.